And uh, we're going to have a reading. Our first reading, Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King, King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River, in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. They also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread upwards. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covered its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth amongst the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still, and when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse of their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and a brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds of a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is God's word.
Father, in song, we've asked that you would speak to us. And as we open your word, we bow before you and humbly ask that by your spirit, you would teach us your truth. That you would challenge and encourage us, that you would correct and rebuke us. That as we understand more clearly who you are, so we pray we might be changed into the likeness of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. I was uh, reading fairly recently an article which I found online, and it was on the Huffington Post. It's not something I read a great deal, but it is fascinating to get a bit of an insight as to what the world thinks about people like you and me, and about what it means to believe in God. And I found one article on the Huffington Post where the journalist was railing against Franklin Graham, uh, the son of Billy Graham. And in the article this journalist wrote, she kept referring to her God. She would say that uh, my God is like this. This is what my God thinks. And she was doing that because she wanted to point the finger at Franklin Graham and said his God, well, his God is so old-fashioned. His God is so Old Testament. Now, that kind of language or that kind of thinking you've probably experienced, and we would expect, wouldn't we, from the non-Christian mindset. But actually, if we're honest, it is one that can very easily creep into our mindsets as well. Because it's easy for our perception, our understanding of God, to be shaped by the world around us. A world where people think very differently. Or it's easier to say something about God that will be acceptable because the world is hostile. And very gradually, we begin to make up God, the image of God in our own minds. And rather than being shaped by him, we try and shape him into our likeness. Or we might find that our confidence in God is unsettled by experience. Maybe you've come here today and... You wonder in some ways where God is. It's all very well coming to church and gathering with like-minded people. But when you're on your own, you wonder. Perhaps your experience in life has been a tough one. You've had a breakdown of a relationship, a loss of a job. You've been disappointed. And you begin to ask, does it really matter if I really trust God? Indeed, you might occasionally say, can I trust God? Or if he's there, does he really care about me? When we come to Ezekiel chapter 1, it's those kinds of questions that would have been very high on the agenda, very high in the minds of those to whom God was speaking. Because at the time, God's people were on the verge of destruction. Uh, You'll recall from your Old Testament that the people of God have been promised a land of their very own. They've been promised that through them, as a blessed nation, they would bring blessing to the world. And indeed, that they'd be a, a numerous nation. Within time, a king, a Davidic king, whose rule would rule forever. And when they finally arrived in the promised land and the temple was built, in that temple there the glory of God came to dwell in their midst. That was their history. But many years before Ezekiel, that wonderful kingdom had split in two. The northern ten tribes of God being subsumed by the superpower of the day in the 8th century, the Assyrians, leaving just a little rump in many ways of the people who were once that great nation, centered around Jerusalem and around the temple. But now, 
another superpower had arisen, that of the Babylonians. And they had come along into Jerusalem and they'd routed it. They put in a puppet king under the Babylonian authority. They'd taken away 10,000 of the leading citizens and then some of the soldiers and others. And they'd taken much of the gold out of the temple. So in terms of the glory and the wonder of what had been, well, now there was very little left. And all those questions, those existential spiritual questions that you and I might have, they had then. And Ezekiel was one of those individuals who'd been deported to Babylon in that first deportation. And the first wave of exiles, when God shows up, have been there for five years. Five long years now as refugees under a foreign power, surrounded by foreign gods. And back in Jerusalem, yes, the uh, city was still standing. There was a king of sorts in place. But things were very fragile. Things didn't look very hopeful. And it would have been very easy, wouldn't it, for them to think on the one hand, does it really matter what we do? Does it really matter if we keep trying to believe in this God when we're away from the land, when it doesn't look as if it promises have come about? Why should we keep trusting him when other gods look more powerful, when other gods seem to have the upper hand? Or perhaps if you're desperately trying to hang on in exile, you might think, does God really care? He seems ineffective against the pagan nations that have forced us into exile. And yet, when the real God reveals himself to Ezekiel, to this young priest by the river Kibar, his response is neither apathy nor doubt. Instead, he falls on his face before the true God, and he remains silent for a week, utterly, utterly, utterly overwhelmed. And it may be that we feel like these exiles at times, that faced with the power of the secular world around us, the world in which we live, we can feel like refugees, marginalized. We can wonder, God, where are you if you're that powerful? God, what are you doing when it doesn't look as if you're doing anything? And in the light of that, God, does it really matter? Does it really matter if I seek to pursue holiness even when people don't see? Does it matter what I believe? Or does we get a glimpse of what Ezekiel saw? As we begin to understand what's going on by the Kiba River, between just this first section, chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 15, the overwhelming answer is yes. Yes, it does matter. And this strange uh, vision of Ezekiel in chapter 1 can be broken down into three sections as the vision moves from the storm where it starts to the throne where it ends. And each part of it tells us something about God, his presence, his place, and his rule. So let's look first then at the living creatures, the living creatures who remind us of the presence of God. I'm going to read again just verses 1 to 5. In the 30th year, or in my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiba River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kiba River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. 
The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, metal, and in the fire was looked like four living creatures. Now, we don't know why Ezekiel went to uh, pray or just visit the Kibar River that day. But what we do know is that as a young priest in training, his 30th birthday would have been a turning point in his ministry. Uh, you notice that there's a little footnote on the first two words. It may not be the 30th year, but my 30th year. This may have been his birthday or the year in which he was 30. And perhaps as he went to the Kibar River that day, he thought, you know, if I was back in Jerusalem, I would have started my priestly duties because they ran for someone from the age of 30 to 50. And who knows what was in his mind with a sense of disappointment or fear. But that day God intervened and visions of God took him not to be a priest, but to be a prophet. And he starts by saying what may have just looked like a strange storm in the plains of Babylon. But he realizes it's something extraordinary and much more powerful. It is of God. And right at the heart, at the beginning of this dramatic vision, there were these four living creatures whose description, quite frankly, is bizarre and unreal. Look again, verse 5. In the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. And all four of them had faces and wings. And their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, the face of a lion. The left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread upwards. Each had two wings, one touching the other. Another creature on either side. And two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like lightning. It's a bizarre vision. And if you read commentaries on Ezekiel, they tend to say, well, maybe Ezekiel was picking up images that people knew in the day. Well, maybe he was, but we don't know. All we've got is the Bible, the rest of this book of Ezekiel and the rest of the Bible. And that is more than enough. Because later on in chapter 10, Ezekiel tells us that as he sees these again, they're cherubim, those who surround and guard the throne of God. They're cherubim who are very similar to those that are found and discovered in the book of Revelation. And do you remember when you see that vision, that initial vision in chapters 4 and 5 of the curtain of heaven taken back and around the throne of God there are those who look like living creatures. And what are they saying before God? They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we're told they give glory to God who sits on the throne and lives forever. It's dramatic picture language of the outriders of the throne of God. We haven't seen God yet. All we've seen is this extraordinary, amazing, powerful picture of the presence of God about to emerge. And, you know, we can't really find a comparable example of that, can we? I was kind of searching my mind and thinking, you know, what is it that has that sense of fear, power and excitement? And I came up with a pathetic example, actually. I quite like cycling. And... Um, Last year, the year before, the um, Tour of Britain came to Exeter. 
So uh, with my sons, who are much faster and stronger than I am on bicycles, we went to the centre of Exeter and we waited with thousands of others for the end of the particular stage that would finish in Exeter High Street. And we waited and we waited and waited and nothing happened. And then after a while, huge numbers of cars started coming through. There must have been 20 or 30 police motorcycles. There were many cars with uh, bikes on their tops. There were officials. And there was a sense the peloton is about to come. A small wait, and then about three seconds of bikes travelling at about 40 miles an hour. The peloton had come. And it was actually tremendously exciting. Now, why do I use that as an example? Because those outriders, all the police cars, all the team cars, all the officials, were giving that sense of expectation, something's about to happen. And that, in a far, far greater, more majestic way, is something of what is going on here. When Ezekiel sees this vision of the four living creatures, what he's seeing is the front wave of something about the glory and the majesty and the presence of God. And the fact that they're so dramatic, almost indescribable, with this powerful lightning coming out of cloud and fire, is all to say, your picture of God is too small. And actually, if these are the outriders, just think about the presence and the majesty and the glory and the power of God who is yet to come. Whenever they appear, that's what's going on in the Old Testament and in the New. And we've got to pause straight away and say, well, you know, is that our picture of God? Ezekiel and his colleagues were there in exile, lots of powerful gods around them. Their God, well, he seems to have been routed and powerless. And is he going to keep his promises? And we can feel like that too, can't we? The world around us with its own gods is terribly powerful. The secular mindset, so militant, so right it seems. And we say, well, I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus. And just as we've heard and the hint of how we evangelize, we feel that as soon as we mention Jesus, we can feel pathetic, can't we? Small. Oh, you don't believe in God, do you? Yes, I do. And the God I believe in is this God, you see. It's a long way from um, that journalist in the Huffington Post railing at Franklin Graham. My God is like this. Well, that's a pygmy, pocket size, man-made God. It's a long way from the God Thomas Hardy mocked when he said, God is the dumb dreaming thing that turns the handle of this idol show. Now, this is not a domesticated God. This is not a back pocket deity who is ineffective against the prevailing mindset or attitude of the age, who looks powerless against the militant atheism of Dawkins or the all-absorbing idolatry that Israel faced. This is a God who is unapproachable. This is a God who is surrounded by brilliant light and fire, who is hailed and praised by creatures with power and might. And this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which Father? Which God? This God. This is the God we sing about. This is the God into whose presence we're ushered through the Lord Jesus This is the God we can call Father. This is the God of Christ Church Mayfair. This is the God who rules the world. This is the only God, holy, majestic, and powerful. Now make no mistake, through all the bizarre language, that's what's going on. Understand something of the presence of God. But it gets more unsettling. For secondly, as you get more of a description of the wheels and how they move, we're reminded something 
or taught something about the place of God. Because his majesty is mobile. Look at verse 15. And as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they'd go in uh, any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rooms were full of eyes and all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. When the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now, my friends, you're not going to be able to picture this. We get the expression in English, wheels within wheels. It's from here. It's confusing. It's powerful. But what you do know is this is all-seeing. The eyes are everywhere and can go anywhere where the spirit of the creatures, that's going to be the spirit of God, takes them. These can go anywhere. Now, one of the great challenges for those in exile is that God's dwelling place was not in Babylon. The whole understanding of God's symbolic presence, his glory in the Old Testament, is that that glory resided in the temple in Jerusalem. And that glory was still there, not in exile in Babylon. And make no mistake, when we talk about the glory of God, we're not talking about something small. We're talking about the nearest we can get to his presence on earth. You'll remember at Mount Sinai, when the law was given, the the, the mountain was surrounded by fire and smoke and was untouchable. Such was the presence and the majesty of God. You'll remember that in Exodus 34, God says to Moses, you you can't see my face. And he hides him in a cleft in the rock as his glory passes by. You can't see the glory of God and live. And you'll remember as well, no doubt, from 1 Kings 8 or back in Exodus chapter 40, when the tabernacle or the temple was built, the glory of God, the presence of God came and dwelt in the tabernacle and then the temple. That's where the glory of God is to be found in the Old Testament. Not here, not by the Kibar River. And yet, one day, as Ezekiel is by this river, this is the God who shows up moving by his spirit wherever he chooses, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, and he arrives here. Now, if you're a Jew in Babylon, that is a great comfort. You see, if you've been exiled with a lot of others, you're probably going to join in the songs that people would sing. Now, that one in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, could have been this one, where we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion. And in that psalm people are mocking them. Sing the songs of Zion. We won't. We can't. Our God is there. And we're here. And we will weep. But suddenly if in this vision God turns up. That is a great comfort isn't it? But also it's rather uncomfortable. Because the people to whom this God turns up. Are described like this. Look at chapter 2 verse 4. The people to whom I am sending you 
are obstinate and stubborn. Or chapter 3, verse 7. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. You see, it's great that God's turned up unless you're a sinner. Remember what Ezekiel, sorry, Isaiah said in his vision? God appears to him in a similar way. And he doesn't get, oh, that's fantastic. I've now got a wonderfully picture of God. He says, woe to me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When God shows up in Babylon, it's not particularly comfortable if you're sinful. And you know, it's the same for us, isn't it? We read, don't we, in John 1, that this God, the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, John says. That's the glory of God. This glory, full of grace and truth. And that should be wonderfully comfortable, shouldn't it? The God of glory, the God of the world has come in flesh to humanity. That's a great comfort. But it's also not very comfortable, is it, when we understand who has arrived? You see, what did Peter say in Luke 5? When he began to understand who Jesus was, he said this, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And you see, Jesus, rightly understood, is a great comfort. But he's also rather uncomfortable. So interesting, a lot of evangelists, I was talking to some of our students recently, and they said evangelism shifted. It's now Jesus can sort out your problems. Now, now Jesus is very kind, isn't he, as Lord? He does do that. But that isn't the gospel, is it? See, when Jesus turns up and we know him, we have a problem. But he is also our solution. He's a comfort. But as a sinner, he's not comfortable. You may recall the conversation from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe about Aslan. And Susan asks Mr. Beaver, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Mr. Beaver replied. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. And isn't that something of the reality of God? Or of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, in a sinful world? Right in the midst of that world, our world, he may be a great comfort. But not for sinful people when they really first understand who he is. He's not comfortable because he exposes the reality of my heart. And we cannot take, therefore, the presence of God in our midst lightly, not least because of what we discover next. And that is thirdly, the throne. Because the throne reminds us of the rule of God. Ezekiel's eyes are lifted higher. Verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling with ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse, over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse, over their head, was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above, on a throne, was a figure 
like that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and like brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now, let's just get a picture in our mind, in a way, of what Ezekiel was seeing. There is an awesome see-through expanse. And above that, there is a throne made of the most expensive known material, probably lapis lazuli rather than sapphire. And above that, there is a figure glowing like fire and surrounded by fantastic, brilliant light. And, you know, we as the readers are meant to ask, could, could this be God? We've had the outriders God can go anywhere, and now our eyes are lifted. We can hardly see this majestic and powerful figure. And so tentative is Ezekiel that he fills the description with the word like. It's what looked like an expanse, like a throne, like a man, like a rainbow. It's the likeness of the glory of God. Because when God shows up, it is a frightening business. And you know, Ezekiel's whole life, though he knew his Bible was turned upside down by this vision. He was utterly overwhelmed when he came face to face with the living God. It's such a long way, isn't it, from Dawkins' God delusion. It's such a long way from Churchill's arrogant comment, I'm prepared to meet my maker, but the question is, is he prepared to meet me? This is diminishing God, but when God shows up, it happens the other way around. But it's even far bigger than most of us in our view of God. You see, as Christians, we sing, don't we, before the throne of God above. Behold our God. This is our God. It's so easy to sing. It's so easy to perform our religion, like Israel. And yet, like them, actually be quite stubborn in our hearts. Like them, be obstinate. Like them, know our Bibles, but when the going gets tough, refuse to listen to the God of the Bible. Because what is it that's distinctive throughout this whole chapter about this God? Well, it is that he speaks. The end of chapter, the last sentence. When I saw it, that is the vision. I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. See, the true God is not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. The true God comes right to the dwelling place of sinful people. The true God comes to those who know their Bibles. But when things are tough, begin to question both the word and the God who's given the word. But the true God, when we understand him, is this God. And no wonder, when Jesus walked the face of this earth, his divine heavenly father broke cosmically into the ears of people. And his baptism and transfiguration with this command, listen to him. And when we understand this God, And take heed of this command, particularly in what he says to this people and to you and me. I think probably we'll find our reactions the same as that of Ezekiel. 
For he says, I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv, near the river Kibar. And there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, overwhelmed. Is this your God? Because there's no other. And as we stand, as we meet him here, there's also no hope other than to listen to him. Shall we pray? Father, please forgive us when our view of you is so small. Where we take the privilege of speaking to you as we are now with such familiarity. When we belittle your truth and fail to obey your word. Forgive us when we complain because things are not as we expected. Or we fail to see the depth of the sin of our own hearts. And we ask humbly that with Ezekiel you would raise our eyes to the throne. And that as our knees tremble, shocked to silence, that we would be those who hear your voice speaking and who listen. 